You could leave life right now. Let that determine what you do and say and think. Marcus Aurelius. Stories are vitally important to me. I tell my clients stories. I share my personal successes and struggles with students I mentor. As I try to find the words to write my first novel, gracefully stumbling onward, and have more interviews and conversations about it, the theme of how we all stumble through life, sometimes gracefully, sometimes not, has repeatedly emerged. And the stories I've heard from people I speak with are simply awe-inspiring. Whether it's dealing with the illness of a loved one, launching or closing a business, getting married, having a child, getting a divorce, losing a parent, or overcoming seemingly insurmountable personal or professional obstacles, we all have compelling stories. I believe sharing how we stumble through them can help others move onward. Seneca wrote, I judge you unfortunate because you have never lived through misfortune. You have passed through life without an opponent. No one can ever know what you are capable of, not even you. A year ago, we sadly lost my amazing wife to cancer. As a husband, father, and man, her journey will always define me. It's now part of my story of gracefully stumbling onward. Well, afternoon, everybody. The Gracefully Stumbling Onward podcast is back, and I am thrilled to be recorded today with an episode with my longtime friend, the Reverend Rob Shank. He is one of the nationally recognized author of Costly Grace, an evangelical minister's rediscovery of faith, hope, and love, a commentator, and a scholar. And Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Michael. Nice to have the reunion with you, if, yeah. if, if, if only uh, two-dimensionally here, but we'll, we'll get our third dimension in soon. We Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be your guest. I know you have well, a good lineup, and uh, uh, I'm delighted that you invited me to be among them. Well, we're very honored to have you. Um, let's just kind of talk about, you know, I, I started off the last episode with Brenda Kelly, and just really, talk, I mean, the, 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 the series is called Gracefully Stumbling Onward. And the premise of that is, is that I firmly believe that as humans, we're all stumbling onwards through life. Some of us gracefully, some of us not so gracefully, but then kind of rebound. And, you know, and that's the beauty of it, right? As humans is that we can be graceful and not graceful at the same time and all kind of see eye to eye on lots of issues and then not on some others. And But at the end of the day... You know, you know, our hearts and minds are all human at, at every level. Um, and where we ultimately end up is the same way. Um, so, you know, for me, I wanted to ask you, like, kind of give us our audience kind of a, just a, a glimpse into your, I mean, you've been in this world for 40 years of doing all sorts of fantastic stuff. When I talk to people about the Reverend Rob Shank and Rob, I'm like, there's not anybody I've ever met that's more fascinating and have more rich texture than Rob. So, like, you could take it away, kind of give us kind of a glimpse up to when you wrote Costly Grace, you know, a little bit about that history. And then, you know, we could talk, you could talk a little bit about the Diedrich Bonhoeffer Institute as the founder of that and what you're doing now and, you know, the next phase of your career in life. Yeah, well, thank you for the invitation, and Michael, I find your story equally fascinating. You know, <laughs> of course, just you've got so much more to say, but of course you invited me into the cancer journey with your lovely wife and in relation to your son. 
uh, and I will always feel deeply honored and privileged at that invitation. So thank you for inviting me to come along in that painful and complex part of your life. So um, I hope you'll write your book uh, soon because I hope so too. So much to tell the rest of us on that. Um, thank you. Rob. You know, you say I've been, uh, you know, my life has been full of of. Uh, you know, interesting experiences, and it has, uh, and I'm very grateful for that. But the one thing I have not experienced, what you have, and it's yeah. monumental. So I'd like to learn from you on that. Uh, so uh, thank you for, for the compliments to my book, and I'm complimenting yours in advance of it even being written. <laughs> so <laughs> count on me for an endorsement if it has any value at all. Well, you can help me find a publisher for it someday. <laughs> I would be happy to recommend you for sure. Uh, well, you know, you asked me about those 40 professional years, if sure. you will. Uh, you know, I'm about to turn 65 any day now, a couple of mm -hmm. weeks from the recording of this conversation. And I laugh uh, with my own family that the big deal in my life right now is that I actually got my Medicare card. <laughs> <laughs> my wife of 46 years, Cheryl, would tell you uh, I was literally going out to the mailbox uh, to see, is it here, is it here, is it here? I never thought I would be at a stage of life where a Medicare card meant so much to me, especially <laughs> after sitting at dinners with the Chief Justice of the United States, meeting presidents and leaders of Congress. So, you know, life is full of uh, mountain peaks and valleys, and we have to be content in both. and. I'm living a little quieter life right now, uh, with some exception. But, you know, this all really started um, when I was a teenager, and I was introduced to the son of a Methodist minister. I had been raised in a largely non-religious home. Um, my father was born Jewish. My mother, born uh, Catholic and baptized as an infant in the Catholic Church, was raised uh, in the Episcopal Church by her father, who was the patriarch of the family, um, but had really abandoned uh, religion by the time she met my father. She would convert to Judaism uh, to appease his family. Uh, who were not happy that he was uh, intending to marry outside the faith. Mm -hmm. And because of that experience, they raised all four of their children, my identical twin brother, my two older sisters, and me, with an ethic, which was you have to be open to everyone, uh, affirming of everybody, no matter who or what they are. And they were particularly sensitive on this religious issue. So they gave their children permission to go out and shop religion, which we did. And I met the son of this Methodist minister whose father was a pastor uh, in our community. Um, he would take me to a tiny little country Methodist church, a smaller congregation, where I heard the preaching of a British minister 
named Peter Bolt from Plymouth, England, who talked about uh, knowing Jesus Christ in a personal way. And it, it connected with me, especially Jesus um, in the Sermon on the Mount, where he blessed the poor and peacemakers, and um, where he spoke about those who mourn, who have suffered great loss in their lives. The, the people in the shadows and the margins who, who are experiencing pain and suffering. And that was very appealing to me. And I mm. said, I, I like this character, Jesus, mm -hmm. and I like his message. And my identical twin brother Paul and I would eventually embrace that message of Jesus, make a public profession of Christian faith, which started an adventure that my parents would ultimately come to support. Um, but I, I sensed very early on, still as a teenager, when I was 17 or 18, that I really wanted to give my life to this. And, and so uh, I asked my pastor, how do you become a minister? And he gave me some guidance. Uh, I would find my way to a small Bible college, we called it, for the preparation of ministers within my evangelical uh, wing of the church. Right. And, um, and that would lead eventually to ordination. And that would become my, more than my profession, my calling for the rest of my life until yeah. now. Not, not to say it, it, it didn't undergo some significant changes uh, yeah. across those years, but that, that's kind of how it, it got started. And uh, I would serve as a youth minister working with teens. Uh, I was a resident counselor in a church-sponsored home for recovering heroin addicts. I lived with 15 recovering heroin addicts and brought my new wife, Cheryl, into that environment. It was a crazy time, but hmm. one I treasure. Uh, I would serve uh, as an associate pastor in small and large congregations in the in rural areas, in suburbs, uh, in uh, New York City, uh, so big urban environments, uh, and then and then I started an odyssey that would land me in Washington D.C. as a minister to top elected and appointed officials, including presidents, leaders of Congress, and justices of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. And that's where the story has a bit of a downturn until 2018, well, yep. really 2015, I'd say as early as 2015, when I started to turn away from that and extract myself from what I by then saw as a politicized form of religion. Yeah. Uh, and I have some regrets uh, that attend to many of those years, uh, almost 30 in all. Yeah. Uh, and for the last uh, now seven or eight years, I've been on a different course. And of course, yeah. that would result in meeting you, among right. other things. I found you in that period of time. And it's interesting that we're recording this conversation 
during Rosh Hashanah, which is, of course, not just the Jewish New Year, but it's a time of reflection and repentance mm. and repair. Mm -hmm. So I've been thinking a lot about that, and I've been invited to talk in some forums about it. So all that to say, um, you know, there's more to the Odyssey. I don't know how much of it you want to explore, but I probably talked long enough to take a little break here and hear your yeah. voice. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. No, I mean, you know, it's fascinating. In your book, Costly Grace, I mean, you know, I, you know, I read it when we were, you know, we should tell our audience. I mean, you know, when you were the founder of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute and you, you, you created that institute and you could talk a little bit about, you know, your, you know, uh, you know, the whole calling in regards to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I mean, you taught me about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I, you know, I, I knew him from history, but not from like a more, you know, reading the books and Bonhoeffer and some of the stuff that we did. But, you know, I own a marketing firm and you were launching that firm and we had a, a mutual colleague that introduced us and from a fundraising perspective and we started doing work together. And But work that was... You know, this is where, you know, and that, so that had to be 2017, 18. Is that sound about right? We restarted, yes. like, working together with, like, the, the fundraising of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, the marketing, you, uh, your work with Abigail Disney, and, you know, that kind of, and the Armor of Light, of course, Which documentary. I'm happy, I'm happy to tell that part of the story. <laughs> yeah, why don't like you tell us some of that about that? Because I, that whole time period with the Armor of Light, um, what you wanted to do with Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute and how you wanted to change hearts and minds in turbulent times, you know, change hearts and minds in the Christian community in turbulent times, specifically around some pretty big issues. And I think the audience would love to hear because that is about, I mean, you're stump we were, you were stumbling onward through very difficult conversations for sure. I, I sure was uh, because, you know, in 2009, I took a break from my work in Washington, D.C., where I was more or less, I have to be careful how I use this word because this term lobbyist, because lobbying has a specific legal definition to it. And right. I was not doing that kind of lobbying, but I was seeking to influence the thinking of some of our top elected and appointed officials. I had been part of a national anti-abortion movement for some 20 plus years. And uh, that was what thrust me into Washington, D.C., where I actually had uh, a Supreme Court case called Schenck versus Pro-Choice Network. It was, uh, you know, all over the conflict in this country, the great tension between the two polar opposites, people who wanted to criminalize abortion and people who saw it as an untouchable constitutional right. Mm -hmm. I was on one side. I would later change my mind dramatically and even publish about that change of mind on that subject. But at that point, I was on the hard right. I was for the criminalization of any abortion procedure without exception. Right. And that took me to Washington I got involved in a Supreme Court case. I got involved with legislation, uh, attempts to 
you know, institute law that would regulate at least, if not limit, or maybe ultimately abolish abortion as an option uh, for women. Um, I met and, and campaigned for presidents and presidential candidates. I did all of that mm-hmm. for almost 30 years. Yeah. And then I had a, a personal crisis because I took a leave of absence, enrolled in a late-in-life doctoral program. I'd always wanted to do my doctorate. I saw an opportunity. I seized it. I was given a full-ride scholarship, and who can say no to that? Right. So I did my work, and I studied the German church and its relationship to Adolf Hitler and his racialized dictatorship in Germany. And it was just shocking to me what I discovered because the evangelical church that was my identity, my tribe, if you will, my community here in this country, fully embraced in Germany, the German version of that, fully embraced Adolf Hitler and called him a gift and miracle from God. Right. And of course, I rediscovered, as you rediscovered, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, because of your work with my organization, I rediscovered Dietrich Bonhoeffer because of my doctoral work. I was reading Mm -hmm. him, researching this young, brave, brilliant World War II era German church leader, a pastor, a theologian, a Christian ethicist who was not only involved directly in the church, but was teaching in universities on these subjects. And he was a young guy. He was, he was brilliant. He did his second doctoral dissertation at age 21. It's unbelievable. That's a brain in a different dimension. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, right. And he was doing church work. He was lecturing in the universities. And that's saying a lot because Germany had one of the highest educational bar standards in the world at that mm-hmm. time. And he became one of the first voices, one of the first church voices to speak out against Adolf Hitler and the Nazi party. And he would pay dearly for it. Uh, first with restrictions, uh, he was forbidden from lecturing in the universities. He was forbidden from preaching and publishing books, and he was a prolific author. He was eventually arrested, imprisoned, tortured, and then hanged by the Nazis at age 39, newly engaged to be married. Mm. So he paid the full price for his uh, conscience. But he left behind a wonderful library of literature, uh, over 10,000 pages on on moral philosophy, on ethics, on government, uh, and on theology. Yep. Well, I, I poured over that stuff. Uh, and what I discovered in reading it was not only the errors that my own religious tribe was committing, in its politicization, in its marriage to a particular political party, namely the Republican Party. Right. 
that we would come to fully embrace the candidacy of Donald Trump. And I, I don't care where you sit on, on these things, you know, whether, whether you support and like Donald Trump or you don't. What bothered me was this inseparable bond between religion and partisan politics. Sure. It seemed that each was corrupted by the other. Yep. And so it, it threw me into a kind of crisis because I had been doing this for almost 30 years. And I had a big organization. You know, my previous organization, yep. Faith in Action, had had hundreds of churches across the country that we were affiliated with. This was an organization I had built over 30 years. We had 50,000 individual financial contributors, donors, yep. some yep. of them quite significant. Uh, we, by then, had relationships in all three branches of government. I was going to dinner with Supreme Court justices. I was hobnobbing with presidents, visiting the White House. I was uh, regularly with top leadership in the Congress, came and went as I willed. Uh, and now I was in crisis because I no longer believe that what I was doing was of benefit to our country. Mm or to my religious community, right. that each was negatively affecting the other. And to dismantle, you know, an organization of that scale is complex in itself. But when it's your full entire identity, it was yeah. my complete identity. I was known as the missionary to Capitol Hill, yeah. minister to top elected and appointed officials. I, I, you know, I had to navigate that. And at the same time, my ideas about abortion, about issues like same-sex marriage, about uh, the public display of religious symbols on yep. public property, all of that was changing for different reasons. And then I met a filmmaker named Abigail Disney. Yeah. And I don't know, you... you, you you know that whole story with the yep. film The Armor of Light, yep. which would win an Emmy. Yep. But it has a whole drama in itself. Uh, right. Fascinating. Fascinating. You want me to go on? Or... Watch it. People need to watch it. It's fascinating. It, it, you fascinating. know, what, what Abby... Here, here, Abby Disney was the diametric opposite of me. Yeah. First of all, I was raised in a very middle-class home. Abby was raised in the fame and fortune of the Disney empire. Right. Granddaughter of Roy, who built what we know as the Disney Corporation, the Disney Entertainment Company. Uh, her uncle, her great uncle, uh, I'm sorry, her granduncle, which there's no real term for. So she always just knew him as her uncle was Walt, the creative genius, Walt Disney. Uh, she's a very smart woman, um, not an empty, you know, empty-headed heiress. Right. Um, she, you know, she, she has all of her degrees up to her PhD from uh, top universities in the United States. She's 
owns several companies, and she is a very fine documentarian. So she came to me and she said, I've been to evangelical Christian leaders all across the country, and I've asked them if they would look with me at the evangelical embrace of popular gun culture, because your people are some of the most likely in, among the American populace to support unfettered gun rights, uh, unlimited Second Amendment, um, and not only so, but to have access to or ownership of firearms. So the Second Amendment was just kind of part of the conservative package. It just kind right. of went along with it. And I, I thought, well, that's an interesting question. She said, well, I think you should ask religious people why that's so. Mm. And it took me a long time to say yes, I finally did. And the result was an Emmy Award winning film called The Armor of Light. And in those interactions with Abby, with others I met, and even with my own, on the question of, of uh, gun ownership and use, I just started seeing things very differently, and I had to face myself on those matters, and it was not easy. Mm. It's not easy to change your mind on anything at any time in your life, let alone after you have professionally built uh, a, a national movement and enterprise on certain beliefs. Yeah. And then you're challenged to change all that and essentially dismantle all of it and walk away and change your identity. It's hard. It's mm -hmm. very hard. It can be imagine. very scary. It is certainly very risky. But once you do it, and if you do it right, and I think there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it, but if you do it right, and I think in the end I did, Agreed. it's very rewarding and very liberating. So that that's kind of how Abby Disney factors into this whole yeah. thing. And of course, she would become part of my building a new organization after all those years called the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute which would engage the services of a brilliant brand expert and <laughs> graphic artist and wordsmith named Michael DeRoche. And we were off and running just for that, if nothing, if no other reason. If one other thing we've always done is we've always made every institute look bigger than they are from the beginning. You did it brilliantly. You helped <laughs> us. No, you know what you did? You, you gave us... You helped this idea become concrete right. and brought it from, from imagination into reality. You were our Disney. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> you became our Disney genius because you took the imagination, <laughs> uh, what we imagined could happen, and you helped us actually uh, make it real. And I'll always be grateful to you. Oh, you're for very it, welcome. And you took everybody on a journey with that. I mean, you know, when you're thinking about the heart of the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, you used to use this term a lot, no matter what we were talking about, immigration, guns, other things, you know, with the CNN stuff, like, you know, <clears throat> when we went down to, you know, we did that big event, uh, gospel on the sidearm and those kind of events. And, you know, you took the people that worked with you on a journey all the time of something about, and we and you talked about that, hearts and minds. 
and and you know and asking folks in your tribe to change th- not maybe change but think about their hearts and minds and how it relates to all of us as humans as equals we're you're just a human you're not any different based on all sorts of different things from you know race and ethnicity and cultural and religious backgrounds and political backgrounds but you know change have the conversation, have the discourse at least. And, you know, and I feel that during that time with TDBI and now even obviously after, you know, what has happened um, during the pandemic, before the pandemic, you know, January 6th and some of the other things, no matter where you fall, like you said, no matter where you fall in the political sphere of things, you know, we're in a different time. I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the, you know, like with the January 6th thing, it really, it never even really, it didn't happen during the Civil War. Like, I mean, things like that don't happen on this soil, right? And and the discourse around the divide in this country, which scares me, Rob. I mean, you know, I'm a, I'm a man, I mean, now, as you know, a widower raising a nine-year-old boy in a world where... Bravissimo, Michael right, I, I get concerned. Like, you know, we're in a divide of a country that, you know, as me as an American history buff, not you know, as well-read as you are or some other people, but I'm an American history buff, and our colleague John Kanin is an American history buff. And, you know, like, when you think of history, you get concerned about, like, that the country could be so not only divided 50-50 or 60-40 or whatever you want to throw on it from a percentage rate, but really what concerns me is that the discourse is not there and that there's no gray, like, there's a lot of us in this gray area that are just not listened to and then when you are listened to there could be this whole other scenario where well that really didn't happen or you know oh no no you know like let's use the famous term that's fake news no matter where you fall on it it could be fake news on the right or the left doesn't really matter but that there's this scenario where it doesn't even matter what the people in the middle say and so and i wonder how we navigate that as you know where you're going in your life where i'm raising my young son and and you know and this is what i think we need to all look at and this is part of the reason of the podcast is like you know i envision like you know that at some point the gracefully stumbling onward onward podcast with other folks like you and other people and what you're doing with your writing online is keeping conversations open between people with different backgrounds different values different thinking but can have Civil conversations, because our whole world has been built on civil conversations. This country was built on trying to develop civil conversations. And when they did go wrong, you know, it took, you know, people like Abraham Lincoln to change things. And you know what I mean? That's just kind of how the history's worked. And I just hope that we could get there again. What do you think about some of that in terms of just, you know, just how hard it is, I think, to break through some of that? It used to be easier to have open palaver, I think, and open discussion than it is now. Yeah, well, this is going to take me back to Abigail Disney's appearance in in my life and work. And here's why. First of all, little few little factoids about the Disney story. Okay. One is, um, and people love to know these kinds of things, and Abby talks about them openly, so I'm not talking out of school here, but uh, the... The, the Disney family, Roy, again, the business genius, Walt, uh, the creative genius, were arch conservatives. These people 
were very, very conservative in their politics, in their social sensibilities, in their religious practices and beliefs. Um, so that's how she was raised. But in her teens, she rejected all of that. She became extremely liberal and progressive. She left uh, very conservative Southern California, moved to New York City, where she has lived most of her adult life, and she's my contemporary. She's in her early 60s. Yep. Um, so the result of this is that Abby was bilingual. She spoke two languages. She spoke sure. conservative and she spoke liberal. Um, and, and she honored my conservative sensibilities in, in surprising ways. I mean, if you look at her, she is a longtime women's rights activist, pro-choice uh, activist, and on and on it goes. She was everything opposite of me. Yeah. <laughs> and yet, yep. when we first met, and when, and yet she she honored my reasons for believing and doing the things I was doing. She didn't, you know, she didn't go crazy and and accuse me of being, yep. you know, some kind of nefarious evil actor. And I learned to see her in the same way. I, you know, Michael, you and I have always had a very candid conversation. Sure. So if you don't mind, I'll, I'll, I'll stay yeah. with the same theme here and just tell you that I was so conservative in my sensibilities when I met Abby Disney that, number one, I was shocked to discover she was actually married. I thought super liberals weren't for marriage. I, I, <laughs> I thought of them as anti-marriage. Not only so, but she loved her husband of 35 plus years and her four kids. Right. I was told liberals didn't want to have children. That's why they aborted their babies. Mm -hmm. And I believed that. So right yeah. away, she shattered the stereotype for me. Wait a minute. Here's a woman married for decades to the same guy, loves him dearly, loves her four children. I only had two. So nice. she was doing better than me in my world. <laughs> we were supposed to have more than, more than anybody else. I had less than her. So it, it started that small. And, and then it grew because then, you know, I like to say this, that in order to be successful, to be well-balanced, to have good relationships, you have to have, you know, just enough self-confidence about yourself, about your beliefs, about what you're doing. At the same time, though, it needs to be a humble yeah. self-confidence. In other words, be open to being wrong right. or ignorant. Maybe I don't know as much as I think I know. Right. Maybe what I know is wrong, or at least partly wrong. And maybe... I should listen for a while instead of talk, which is why what I'm doing right now is ironic because I seem to be doing too much of the <laughs> I talking. I asked you to do that though, Rob. So yeah, that's I guess, you did. <laughs> I guess you did. But, you know, I, I started <laughs> checking myself and asking, am I listening enough 
or am I doing all the talking? I had been doing all the talking yeah. for a lot of my life. And so I decided it's time to start listening. And, you know, you've met my wife, Cheryl, and Cheryl is not just a wonderful human being, somebody I'm thankful to God for every day of my life. But, and we've been married 46 years now and still in love. Congratulations. Thank you. Mm. Um, but she's also a very capable professional and happens to be a psychotherapist. So, I, yeah. you know, I've gotten plenty of free therapy over the years and that's been very helpful but she's a very patient listener and i decided maybe i should be more like my wife uh, and and do some deep and long listening to others who have different perspectives different opinions different belief systems different ways of seeing and interacting with the world so i i, I did some of that i also started doubting myself you know early on in my ministry career and you know i've enjoyed a lot of media coverage over my yeah. career a lot of headline stories a lot of interviews with all the big media enterprises uh i've been published at essays and op-eds and even little letters to the editor i've just enjoyed a lot of success with the media and one of the reasons that i have is because I had a mentor named John McCandlish Phillips. Uh, he wrote under the name McCandlish Phillips for the New York Times for 20 years. He had written for Time Magazine before that. He was a very successful journalist. And I got to know John, as I called him. The rest of the world knew him as McCandlish. But... Um, I, I came under his tutelage and mm -hmm. I asked him, I said, John, what's the secret of working with the media and gaining earned, what's called earned media? You know that term. It's, yep. you know, getting the story because if you get a good story in an objective or at least a seemingly objective <laughs> medium, uh, newspaper, magazine, radio, television, now certainly with the internet, podcasts, etc. If a third party says nice things about you, that's advertising you can't buy. It's no. invaluable. Yep. So I asked him, what's the secret to that? And he said, I'll give you the Ten Commandments of working with the media, which he did. But I won't go through every one of them here. I'll yeah. just say that one of those commandments was always sprinkle everything you say with a healthy measure of self-doubt, little bit of humility, yeah, because yeah. that makes you credible. Right. If you're nothing but a, can we say bad words on this podcast? Sure. If you're nothing but a pompous ass, <laughs> people will doubt you just because you're you're too self-confident. Right, you, right, you right. You believe right. in yourself too much. Right. He said, give yourself some space to be wrong right? and just sprinkle it in there. And I took him very seriously and I did that. And it, and it was one of the 10 commandments he gave me. Every one of them worked and worked very well. And over the course of my career, I didn't have ever, I never bought advertising, never. Yeah. And the reason was because I enjoyed so much earned media. Right. I, I even called 
my quotations that found their way to the front pages of all the big journals in America over the course of my career, I used to call them sermons in a sentence. I would think about that potent, powerful, little, short phrase that I knew would find its way into... Find, it, reporters would find it irresistible. Mm-hmm. Producers, directors, editors would would love it because it's pithy, it's powerful, everything's in there. And, and I would just place it, and I learned over time how that was to work. Well, all of that is simply to say that there came a stage in my life. I was, I was approaching 60. Um, you know, I'm in my mid-50s by now, and, and I'm starting to think, wow, John was right. And I need to find that self-doubt again. And yeah, ask, yeah. where am I right? And, and feel good about that. But where am I wrong? And change. Yeah. And again, it's hard. And, and you have to work it through. And it's fraught with problems. But when you get out the other side, and that I met you pretty much when I was on the other side of all of that. Yeah, yeah. And I would publish, for example, an essay in the New York Times in which I went from 30 years of fighting to end Roe v. Wade and to reverse it, which, of course, has since happened. Yeah. But I went public and said I was wrong. Yeah. And that the reversal of Roe would actually hurt women and probably lead to worse outcomes than abortion. Right. And that was my real big public coming out. Uh, that, yeah. that was in 2018. 2018, yep. And so all these years later, you know, I now address this publicly. I, I write about it. I speak about it. Not just, you know, my change of opinion, but how I came to make those changes. Why my mind changed on those mm-hmm. things. And, and that's, that, that's, that's what I do now, and, and I'm doing it. You know, you helped us launch the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute for that purpose, among others. But then beyond that, you know, it was time to move to another dimension of work at this phase of my life. I've always wanted to teach, and I'm now doing that at a wonderful, pluralistic uh, educational institution, amazingly, you know, which caters to conservatives and liberals, traditionalists and progressives, everybody oh, wow. in between, called Hebrew College at oh, the Miller Center. You know, that's the Miller Center for Interreligious Learning and Leadership. Uh, and we folded our Bonhoeffer programming into the Miller Center's programming. This is in Newton, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. So sure. near, near you, it's at least a New England institution. Right. And that's like coming home for me because I spent my summers as a kid in Connecticut and I had family in Boston. Yeah. So all of that. And, and that kind of that's kind of the, the summary of where things stand now. Yeah, it's fantastic, too, Rob. And, you know, you know, what kind of advice do you have for folks, you know, just in terms of how do you. You know, you have you've had to make, you know, these huge transformations in your thinking, being honest 
to yourself and then admitting to folks that I, you know, the Reverend Rob Shank, I was wrong in my thinking or, you know, it, I did more harm in my thinking than I, you know, and that's, that's, you know, stumbling through that. And I use that word all the time, you know, just, you know, moving onward and constantly, you know, I had a mentor <coughs> that always taught me, excuse me, taught me two things when I was like 21 years old. And he was, a, he was the other person in my life that I would say has such a rich, rich texture as you. His name was Frank Tavares. He was the voice of NPR. So every time you heard over the years, I had him as a, uh, uh, undergraduate professor for crisis communication and amongst other things. And we hit it off instantly when I was working my way through college and stuff and undergraduate. And, but he, at the time he was still doing NPR stuff. So every time you heard most of the time nationally, NPR was brought to you by blah, 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 blah. That was Frank. And you uh. know, that was just Frank. That was Frank's life. And, you know, and it's just such an interesting man. You know, he's written, he wrote all sorts of short story books. He's published a bunch of times. And, you know, he just, uh, similar to you, just in different ways. And Frank was just a great guy. But he always told me, and it stuck with me literally my entire life, uh, professionally. There's a reason, Mike, while the rearview mirror is small and the, de and the windshield is large, there's nothing there in the rearview mirror. You can learn things, you can, you know, you'll, you'll have better understanding from things, but it's the same thing with stoicism, right? You know, philosophy, you know, that, and I say it all the time, I have a medallion that says it, the obstacle is the way. The impediment mm -hmm. to advancement is the challenge. You have to go through it. And what Frank used to tell me was, even at, you know, 20 years old or whatever I was, that, you know, just stay onward, regardless, you know, regardless. And I used those lessons in my journals the entire time, the, obviously the hardest journey of my life so far, it was my wife's cancer journey, right? Yes. And then second of that, picking up all the pieces with an eight-year-old boy, right? And moving yes. us all onward and keeping us all on the path. And we're, we're doing all, we're doing amazingly well, I've you know? i watched and, with and, such great admiration and already learned from you just by observing Right. And how do you, you know, yes, I, I totally agree with that. But, you know, and, and you know, and, and just, and that's, it's the one thing I think as humans that we all have in common that, you know, I, I, I hear stories, I, you know, I've talked to people, I, you know, as I try to write the words of Gracefully Stumbling Onward, the book, the novel, that I'm just like, it's, it, it really is storytelling still to this day. The oldest thing in the book is, you know, campfires talking around, telling stories. And that's what connects us. And, you know, and that's the thing that, you know, people on both our sides of the argument about social media versus, you know, like the pandemic. It really affected, you know, the idea that we weren't telling stories. We took it for granted. People took for yes. granted being with you, being in the same room and just sharing stories and sipping that coffee or, you know, whatever else people like to drink and whatever. Mm -hmm. But that's what life is and that's what being human's about. So I was wondering as we impart here, uh, you know, it was this great conversation today and I know you, you know, you have to be somewhere else and, and uh, you know, actually I actually, I know that in a little while, my, uh, as you know, I'm a lifelong cowboy fan. So, you know, I'll be watching oh, the Cowboys. Oh, wow, yes, that's the afternoon. most important thing. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, right. On a Sunday afternoon, my son is all about the red zone. Of and course. Football. Later today, he's still at a soccer game right now. And uh, but, you know, what, you know, with new like you know, and people like, you know, growing up now, you know, in their young and professional careers, I always ask people this. What 
kind of advice would you give folks that are kind of, you know, because people ask me that all the time. What would you tell young advertising, marketing students? And I always tell them one thing. One, because I learned this from another mentor, never take your title too seriously. And I heard that mm -hmm. in your conversation today, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. maybe I took my title too seriously, right? It was always yes. me outbound talking and not listening enough. You know, so I always say that to young students, and you know, like, don't take your title too seriously because it's 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 not becoming of you at any point in your career. And then number two, kind of try to find balance. Focus on balance between your, you know, whatever you're doing professionally, whatever you're doing personally, but your friends, your family, because at the end of the day, that's really all you have. It really is all you have. Yes. And especially when you see anybody, anybody in your life that has hardship with like, and specifically the health hardship. Um, when stats really deteriorating or in trouble, you see how fragile we really all are. And you as, as a faith-based person as you are, um, you know that better than anybody. And, and some of the nice words and the sentiments that you gave me privately, um, you know, after, uh, you know, my wife had passed away and during her journey. So what would you impart on, you know, even young intellectuals like yourself that are coming up or, you know, on the front lines now of all different movements and stuff. What would you say to them today if they said, Reverend, what, what do you have for me to help me guide me through this new world that we live in? Yeah, there's so much to say, but to distill it down, you know, I think uh, the advice you give uh you know, to your mentees is a really important one. Don't take yourself too seriously. Don't be too impressed with yourself. Right. Um, it's fine to celebrate your accomplishments, and you should. Uh, you can feel very good and even congratulate yourself, and you should. But there's a point at which you think of yourself, and this is a New Testament uh, verse, you know, a, 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 a saying, an instruction given in the Bible, in what we Christians know as the New Testament, where St. Paul, you know, this, this larger-than-life character mm -hmm. who underwent significant change himself, went from persecuting Christians, literally murdering them, to uh, becoming one of the greatest Christian figures in all of history. Uh, he said to his charge, um, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. <laughs> so keeping right. yourself in perspective, and that was, that's the guidance you've given to your uh, mentees, you know, I think it's a good one for, for everyone. I, I would certainly reinforce that and echo it. Um, and, and, and there's a little more, you know, um, the relational dimension to life. You know, you're talking about losing your wife. I can't even imagine that. Uh, and, and, and that's why you've written a magnificent piece of fiction in your novel, and, and you gave me the privilege of a pre-read yep. on it, and I enjoyed it immensely. Now I'm hoping you'll do your, your non-fiction uh, tome uh, <laughs> and give us, you know, that 
part of your story as much as everything else because we can all learn from it. And, I, you know, in my pastoral work, I know many people express regret after they've lost a loved one because they say, I didn't do enough. I didn't, I didn't treasure that relationship. I know that's not your story, and that's why we can learn from it. In fact, watching you go through it, I thought if only I had had you as a model for all the people I'd helped through my ministerial career, as they were losing that. a loved one, they would have been better off for it. But I'm just grateful for getting to know you at what stage of life I have, because I'm, I'm learning from you. But all that to simply say that, you know, um, we, we, have to, we have to really learn from each other and, and uh, that's really, really important that, that we value one another because in the end, as you say, uh, it brings to mind, and I, I don't want to go down another rabbit trail because I know time for both of us is limited here, but if you'll let me tell just a sure. very, very brief story about meeting a billionaire when I was a young minister, um, and he was the owner of a big uh, steel manufacturing company. Uh, Ken Lipke was his name. Uh, yep. he, he had actually been a doctor, and then he bought into the steel industry and revived a, a whole sector of it. It was an astounding accomplishment. And he, he was so wealthy that he had, he had seen a villa in Italy that he really loved. It was a tiny little, almost like a village. It was numerous buildings and walls and walkways and so on. He had it dismantled and rebuilt in western New York State where he lived. Oh. He helicoptered to work every day to his office in a high-rise very wealthy man had a three-engine private jet sitting on the tarmac at the airport, wheels up whenever he wanted it. And he looked at me one day and he said, do you know what I am? And I said, well, Dr. Lipke, I'm, very, I'm aware of all your accomplishments. And he mm -hmm. said, none of them matter. He said, I'm the loneliest son of a bitch you'll ever meet in your life. Oh. And that had such a profound impact on me. Yeah. As you say, in the end, what matters is the people we love and the people who love us. It's how we treat other human beings, even our opponents. Right. The people we disagree most with, sometimes that's the greatest test of our mm. character, of, of you know, our, our nature. Um, it's, of course, family. And as I look back in that tiny rearview mirror, and what great advice you got from your, your mentor there, because it's, it's what we do next, it's the future, it's what we do to rebuild damaged relationships. Sure. And I, you know, I've always believed it's never too late to correct the mistake, so you can always stumble forward, move forward, repair the damage done. It's never too late to correct the mistake. And I've now watched that with people much older than me who are in their 80s, even some who are in their 90s, who right. are doing that work of repair and moving forward. 
yep. in relationships. So the, that's the best advice I can impart as we close. Uh, and I, 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 I think I'm in good company with you, Mr. DeRoche. <laughs> well, I know I'm always in great company with you, Rob. And thank you so much for being part of this. My we pleasure. really appreciate Michael. it. My and, pleasure. Uh, We'll, we'll talk soon. 